Good morning, everyone. Excuse me. Sabbath. I don't know how many of you uh, suffer from procrastination, uh, putting off things that you know you should be doing. And perhaps if you can think back, or if you are a student, can think back of a time when you were preparing for a big test and you sit down the night before the test and you realize, uh-oh, you procrastinated too much, you put off the studying too much, you realize that there's no way you have time to absorb all the material, and panic sets in. And in this day and age, probably if panic is setting in, you probably pick up your cell phone and call or maybe tweet your best friend and say, I got a big test tomorrow and I'm not prepared for it. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And your friend tells you, don't worry. We got it all covered. And it's like, how? Got it? Testing, whoop, okay, there we go. So see if I can capture the story again. So you call your best friend or you tweet your best friend and, and you say, what am I going to do? And your best friend tells you, don't worry, I got it covered. All you need to do is take your textbook, put it underneath your pillow when you go to bed tonight, and when you wake up in the morning, all that information in the book is magically gonna be in your head and you're going to ace the test. And you're standing there and you're thinking like, oh, come on, that is absolutely ridiculous. And your friend is insistent, though. They say, no, 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 I know it's true because my friend so-and-so tweeted it to me. And, 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 and I know it's true because she told me she heard some newscaster on, on channel XYYZ said it, and it's true. So it's got to be true. We live in a day and age of misinformation. Someone says it, it's got to be true. If they spread it on social media, it's got to be even more true. And well, if someone on tabloid TV says it's true, well then, there can be no question to its truthfulness. My deepest concerns with Christianity as a whole is that many Christians may be preparing for the end times in exactly this same manner. We cannot put off to the end to draw close and learn the truth. Nor can we run to social media all the time and expect to find the truth if you are not testing everything you hear with the Word of God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know we've entered what we look around in what is going on in the world today. Never before in the history of mankind has there been something that affected every nook and cranny of this earth. And as we see what's going on in this nation, the turmoil, the hatred, the boiling over, 
We know, Lord, that you have told us that these things were coming, so we should not be shaken. And if anything, Lord, it should stir us up to do your work, to finish what you have charged us to do, so that we can hasten the day of your return. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our first scripture reading today <clears throat> comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And it begins, Paul is talking about a prophecy dealing with the Thessalonians were concerned that they had somehow missed the second coming. They missed the resurrection. And Paul is trying to encourage them and let them know, no, you haven't missed it. There are some things that have to happen yet. And he begins this way, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And that word is an apostasy, a falling away from the truth. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The events that are occurring in this country today and what's happening in the world today is directly tied to this prophecy. For you see that there is a substantial portion of Christianity that believes that in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, it requires a literal Israel and a literal temple to be built in Jerusalem. They believe that Antichrist is not someone who is in the world today, but someone who will come in the future. Failing to discern that the true meaning of Antichrist, and yes, it means to be against Christ, but when you look in the Greek and what the true meaning of Antichrist is, it means someone who sees themselves equal to or as a replacement for Christ. I want you to think about that. Someone equal or replacement to Christ. Who was the first person to have that thought? In heaven? Lucifer. A few weeks ago I was asked, and this question is quite common, and we should be prepared to answer it. If someone to ask you, last week Pastor Joey talked about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Yet, the Christianity is probably one of the most divested in terms of number of denominations than any religion in the world. How is it that it can be that Christ has pleaded that his people be one, that there be so many different Christian denominations, depending on, on what source you use, there are at least 20 Christian denominations that have population and membership in, in 5 million or more. And if you lower it, and depending on the source, you can come out to as many as 40,000 different denominations. How is it that you can be reading the same book, the same material, claim to be following the teachings of Christ, Christ said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and yet have so many different views and opinions what really comes down to is how much you value the Word of God, how much you test what you hear to the Word of God in your own personal study, and in the end, it comes down to how you interpret the Scriptures. 
Remember when Jesus sat down with Nicodemus and he tells him a man must be born again. How did Nicodemus respond? Did he think of spiritual birth? No, he's like, how can a man get, go into his mother's womb and be born a second time? The very next story, the woman at the well, he tells you, I will give you water that you will never thirst from. Give me that water. Who wouldn't want that water? Yet, he was talking about water. She goes, where is the bucket? Because she was like thinking of physical water, but he was talking of spiritual water. Later, he meets the man blind, and the Pharisees who were trying to trap Jesus were following him, and Jesus turns to them and says, you too are blind. And they're like, what? How can we be blind? He was talking of spiritual blindness. Throughout the scriptures, God uses the physical, what we can see, what we can understand, what we can touch, to teach us the abstract, the things that are difficult to understand. This is why this concept of sitting in the temple is so important. Now, I mentioned before to you that, that one of the reasons we are where we are in the United States is because of a large group of Christians through their support behind Donald Trump as pre to be president because Donald Trump, they were somewhere along the line, somebody supposedly had a vision from God claiming that if you use Donald Trump and vote for Donald Trump, he will facilitate the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And their source of justification came from the Bible. Their argument was the same way God used a pagan king in the Old Testament named Cyrus to rebuild the temple, after the Babylonian, God will use another pagan king to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, this theme got picked up so much, I don't know if you can see it, but <clears throat> Israel issued coins commemorating this idea. Trump in the foreground, Cyrus in the background, and as you can see on one side, there's the menorah actually produced by the Temple Institute. I want to share with you something that uh, I grew up Roman Catholic. A lot of godly people in there. God still has his people there. John F. Kennedy was the first Roman Catholic to be elected President of the United States in this country. During campaigning, there were concerns amongst the Protestant churches that a Catholic president would take orders from the Pope. And I want to share with you what he, he was invited to a church in Texas, and I want to share with you just a bit of what he said to ally the fears of the Protestants. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and that no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, 
where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preferences, and where no man is denied public office merely because of his religion, differs from that of the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. He continued, I believe in America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instruction on public policy from the Pope or the National Council of Churches or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that the act against one church is treated against the act against all. This nation was founded on the principle of separation of church and state. Roger Williams, who fled England being persecuted by the Church of England, understood a principle that when Christ says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and what is God is God's, that for a nation to thrive, for a culture to thrive, the last six commandments, which we would summarize as love your neighbor, should be the basis of all civil law. But those first four commandments, which were exclusively the domain of God, should be left up to the individual conscience. For you see, he was fleeing from, from Europe, and in Europe for more than a thousand years, church and state had been united. I submit to you the reason why God has blessed this nation is because of that single principle of the separation of church and state, that each and every one of us have the freedom for our conscience. I don't believe Satan cares who's in the White House. I don't believe for a second Satan cares whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, because they're both wrong in the eyes of God. I don't believe for a second Satan cares what form of government you have. All we need to do is look around the world and see how many different types of governments they are. I don't believe for a second that, that Satan cares even what religion you are, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Muslim, Jewish, or atheist. I believe what Satan is after is that he wants Christians to believe that God's kingdom operates exactly the same way as earthly kingdoms. By using fear, force, and coercion to get you to obey. That, I believe, is what Satan is after. And I believe we as Christians need to be ever so careful to not fall into the trap that Satan has set. Today, I want to answer three questions regarding our scripture reading. First, what was the purpose of the tabernacle or the temple to begin with? Why did God instruct the tabernacle to be built? Second, is a physical temple necessary in order for Paul's prophecy to be fulfilled? Is it possible that there might be one or even more spiritual applications for that prophecy to be fulfilled? And that actually is the third question. Is it possible that Paul's prophecy may have more than one application? That is not unusual in Scripture. The key to it 
is to understand and maintain the fact that we stay within scriptures and its boundaries. The tabernacle first came into play with the Exodus journey. Just very quickly, the Exodus journey, remember, the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. There was a mixed multitude that God then led with Moses, including the Hebrews and foreigners, to leave out of Egypt, to Exodus out of. They came and they crossed the Red Sea. When they were in the wilderness, as they were crossing, there was a pillar of smoke that, that guided them by day, a pillar of fire at night. And when they needed food, God provided the manna. When they arrived at Mount Sinai on the 50th day, God and the angels were on the mountain. In the valley were the people, and Moses stood as an intercessor between the two. Later, Moses then spends 40 days on the mountain with God. And he says this in Exodus 25, 8, and then in verse 9. And what does it say? And let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? That I may dwell among them. And then he continues, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make. So what was the purpose of the tabernacle? Was the purpose of the tabernacle to somehow, with all its sacrifices and all its rituals, was the purpose of the tabernacle to change the heart of God or to change our heart? For you see, if you study the sanctuary and its services and look for Christ in them, as we shall see in a moment, they were all designed to change the human heart. Unlike the pagan sacrifices, which were given because they felt the gods were angry and needed to be appeased, God's sacrifices occurred when you and I sinned. And it was to show us the consequences of sin and how hurtful sin can be. The tabernacle was given as a memorial for the people to remember the Exodus journey. It is only when Christ himself came that the true meaning and purpose of the tabernacle was fully revealed. The tabernacle, its feasts, its ceremonies were all given to teach us about God's plan of redemption. For those who may not be familiar with, I'm going to do a quick tour of the sanctuary. Let's go ahead and bring up the picture. When you look at it, you will see that there are two main areas. There's the courtyard, and then there's the tent of the tabernacle. And I want us to keep that tent of the tabernacle considered because we sometimes overlook its true meaning. And then within that tent of the tabernacle, there were two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. And when you look, there are six main pieces of furniture in there. There's the altar of sacrifice, which begins in the courtyard. Then right after that, there is the laver. After that, you go into the holy place. There is the table of showbread. There is the uh, seven-branch candle lampstand. There is the altar of incense. Then separating the holy and the holy of holies is a veil. And then inside is the ark of the covenant. And the ark of the covenant was constructed that there were cherubs on top, there was a solid gold mercy seat, or atonement seat, and then there was the ark. And what was placed inside the ark? There was the Ten Commandments, and then there was a golden pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. We learn later that what this produces is that the altar of sacrifice, as a memorial, pointed back to the 
death of the firstborn. Then they came to the Red Sea, Laver. As they were traveling in the wilderness, they were guided by a pillar of fire, the seven-branch lampstand, a pillar of smoke, the altar of incense, and then they were fed with manna, the table of showbread. When Moses had been on the mountain with God and he came down, the people cried out to Moses, 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 what? Cover your face, because the glory of God shining from Moses' face was such that the people could not even stand it. And so he had to put a veil over to protect the people. There is a veil that separates them from, from, from us, from God. Not because God wants it to be there, but because our hearts are not yet right with God. We learn later that the altar of sacrifice points us to what? Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Tell me, in order to be saved, is the death of the firstborn still required? Do we not have to die to self, our firstborn nature? Then you come to, to the labor, which points us to baptism. And then you go through with the lampstand. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Later, he says, I am the bread of life. Christ then intercedes for us in, in prayer. The altar of incense, the psalmist in Revelation tell us that the altar of incense represents the prayers of the saints. I know many of you probably know this. Bear with me. There are many who do not. When the people arrived at Mount Sinai, how did they react when God made himself known from the mountain? Did they shout for joy and embrace God? Or were they fearful? Did they not cry out to Moses to stand as intercessor in between because they were afraid that God would destroy them? See, the Israelites had been in bondage for now in a pagan land for over 400 years. They had seen how the Egyptian rituals worked. As slaves, all they would have known is, for regards to, to getting obedience, would be obedience was motivated not by love. You don't love the person who oppresses you, who beats you, who whips you. Your motivation for obedience in that circumstance is to avoid punishment or... Maybe if I do really well, maybe I'll somehow gain some rewards and make my life a little bit easier. This was the mindset of the Israelites. They were not yet ready to enter into a loving, saving relationship with God. And so thus, he uses the tabernacle. And it's interesting how God works. Because some people refer to the tabernacle as God's GPS. God's global positioning system, showing us the way how to get home. Now, there's another aspect of the sanctuary which is pertinent to today's sermon. Let's bring up the next picture. And it's dealing with the coverings over the tabernacle. We have a tendency sometimes to miss the meaning and purpose. You will find a description of this in Exodus 26. The innermost layer, I don't know how well you can tell with the picture, was made of fine linen. It was woven in three colors, purple, blue, and scarlet. And in it were designs of cherub, angels, were to be woven in. The next layer, moving from in to out, was goatskin, 
The next layer then was ram skin, which was to be dyed in red. And then the outermost layer was badger skin. In this covering, where is the beauty? On the inside or outside? On the inside. The fine linen is on the inside. Where was Christ's beauty? External or internal because of his character? The goat and the ram were part of the sacrificial system. And if you were willing to accept it, the badger skin, the outermost layer, <laughs> represents the human outer skin. The next layer, the red layer, would be the blood vessels in the blood. And then, of course, the ram skin, which would have been an off-white, represents the muscles and the rest of the part of the body. I want you to keep this idea in mind that maybe, just maybe, there's just a little bit more to the sanctuary than what we think there might be. Let's go very quickly. The tabernacle was given at Exodus. <clears throat> it served Israel up until the time of David. And then David wanted to build, felt it somehow was awkward that he was living in a permanent home and yet God was living in a tent. So it felt on his heart that he wanted to build a permanent home for God. But God said, no, you have too much blood on your hands. But because of your desire, your son Solomon will build it. So David collects all the material necessary when he passes away, and Solomon then becomes king, Solomon then sets about to build the temple. Now, the ta that Solomon's temple was patterned after the tabernacle, but Solomon decided to make it a little bit more glorious. Where there was one altar of sacrifice, there was ten. Where there was one laver, there was ten. Where there was one branch candlestick, there was ten. But the basic pattern was the same. There was this altar, there was the laver, you go inside the holy place, and then you go inside the holy of holies. And it's important to note that in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant resided. Keep that point in mind as well, too. But it's what Solomon said at the dedication that I want to bring out because it's so pertinent. And if we would just grasp its meaning, those who believe a physical temple was necessary would maybe perhaps start to reevaluate. Second Chronicles 6, verse 18. This is what Solomon said. But will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Question mark. Behold, heaven and, uh, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built can contain you. Think about it. If God created the universe in all its glory, and as we've seen, it not only was good, it was very good, it was perfect at creation, what can you and I do beyond giving our heartfelt response and love and adoration? What can you and I do actually do? Can we actually build a home more glorious than what God has already done? Think about that. That's why this statement is so critical. We know what happened afterwards. Israel continued to rebel against God's covenant. And so right after Solomon, the kingdom is then split. 
The northern kingdom, ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of, comprised of the, of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. The northern kingdom is known as Israel. Israel has no good kings throughout its entire history. Finally, God says, enough is enough. I'm taking you out of the play. I'm issuing you a certificate of divorce. Before you see, it's interesting that when you look back at, at some of the Hebrew words, the meanings sometimes are difficult to come across. But when you look at the meanings, it gets translated as congregation. The actual Hebrew word actually means a rehearsal. We are to gather together. Israel was to gather together in a rehearsal. A rehearsal for what? A rehearsal for the coming of the Messiah. And this is what the script that God had made. He issues the northern kingdom a certificate of divorce and says, I'm going to preserve the line for the Messiah through the southern kingdoms. But the southern kingdom, they have a few good kings, but the most majority are not good. And finally, God says, okay, enough is enough. He removes his hedge of protection, and the Babylonians come in, not once, not twice, but three times. And during that time, they destroy the temple of God. But God did not leave them without hope. We read in Haggai, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, the glory of the latter temple, he tells them, the temple we rebuilt, and the glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in his place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. There was the promise that the latter temple was going to be greater than the first. However, we go to Ezra in 3.12, and we read that there were people who were there who saw Solomon's temple. They now are looking at the rebuilt temple and are lamenting. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers of houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice. What they looked at was a shadow of the glory physically of the first temple. And they're like, how could God have fulfilled? God gave us a promise. And it's where we move now into the New Testament, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ, that we see the full revelation. In John chapter 2, 19 through 21, Jesus is looking at the temple and he says this. And I'm sure many of you know this by heart. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will do what? I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. This is a time where Herod, had King Herod, had put efforts into beautifying and magnificent and doing all kinds of grandeur to the externals, adding rooms and things to it. For 46 years, he had been working on taking the temple that had been built after the Babylonian captivity and beautifying it. And he says, you will raise it up in three days, what's taken us 46 years? But John records later, he says, but he was speaking of what? The temple of his body. He was pointing to a physical temple saying, this is designed to teach you about me. That's one spiritual application. Do you think the scriptures perhaps have more? 
We read in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul is talking to the, to the church in Corinthians. And in it, the church is, is ingrained in, 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 in sexual immorality such that even offensive to the Greeks, whose moral standards were far below. And he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? We have been purchased with a price. We now have a second application, according to scriptures, of what the temple is pointing to. First Christ, then our bodies. We go to Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, and we discover something else. Paul is now talking to the Ephesians about unity being one of the main things. And he says, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into what? A holy temple of the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in God the Spirit. The temple pointed to Christ. It points to my body and your body. And it also pointed to God's people collectively. But we learn in Revelation, chapter 11, verse 19, that there was another temple. And we read that the temple of God was opened where? In heaven. And what was seen? The ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there was lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. Tell me, what happened when God made himself present at Mount Sinai? Was there not lightning and thundering? When the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost, was there not a great wind and great noise and lightning and thunderings? The presence of God is always manifested this way. So my question to you is this. We saw the purpose of the, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the temple, used interchangeably through scriptures, but all pointing to that same pattern that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, the tabernacle. It was designed to point us about Jesus, and I've only just begun to touch on the beauty that can be seen in there. But when we get to the New Testament, we realize that Christ pointed to it and says, that was to teach us about me. Paul later elaborates and says, you know what, it doesn't stop there because we are to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Not just individually, but corporately. I've got to say this with compassion. Does Paul's prophecy require, based on what I've just shared with you in scriptures, does Paul's prophecy require a physical temple in Israel. Is it just possible, just possible, that there could be a man who would exalt himself, mock the covenant by saying he has the right to change the law of God because he has the wisdom of God, and therefore God's law operates the same way as human law, it's arbitrary. It can be changed according to the whims of a man. 
the created is more wise than the creator, is it just possible? We are called to speak truth, but we are also called to speak truth in love. And I speak this especially to those who may be watching who are not familiar with the message. In preparing for this sermon, and it actually was originally entitled Truth Decay, Third to Temple Deception, because I see a continuous decay of truth within the Christian faith, where we are turning away from the Bible and listening to the teachings of men. I watched several YouTube videos. I went to that very social media that people listen to. And I watched a series of videos of people who's claiming the Antichrist. And every single one of them was quoting from the Bible. And every single one of them was saying that Antichrist is not here today, but future. Remember when Paul said, he said he is the son of perdition. That's a fascinating title. Only one other person was given that title. Who was it? Do you know? It was John who told us. He referred to Judas as the son of perdition. Was Judas visibly in the church or outside the church? He was not only in the church, he was part of the 12 disciples who were close to Christ. Remember when, when rebellion happened in heaven, before the earth was even formed, who was it that rebelled against God? Was it those who were far away from him? Or was it an exalted angel named Lucifer, an anointed cherub, anointed by God, who ultimately led the rebellion against God. Is it just possible that that idea of a son of perdition, being someone who claims to be close to God, but secretly in their heart, is exalting themselves? Is it possible that that temple is not a physical temple, but the temple that comprises the Christian church? If you've never seen this picture, I want to read a couple more verses. Revelation 20, verse 11 and 12. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead and small, great, standing before who? God, and the books were opened. Who was sitting on that white throne? God, Jesus. And around that throne, we are told earlier in Revelation that there are four living creatures that shout, holy, holy, holy. And when you go back and you study about the Ark of the Covenant, remember I mentioned that there were cherubs on top. There were two cherubs facing each other, bowed down in reverence, pointing towards God. The psalmist tells us that it is God who dwells between the cherub. We read in Psalms 81, you who dwell between the cherubs shine forth. We refer to it as the Shekinah glory. Is it possible that Christianity has allowed itself to be deceived? Picture, please. 
so that he is God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I don't know if this is the first time you've ever seen this picture. What do you see? You see a man sitting on a white throne. What's next to him? Two gold cherub. And it doesn't stop, does it? Because there are four living creatures, two on either side, sitting around. You know, if you want to hide something, what do you do? You put it in plain sight. If you're going to lie, you tell a lie as if it's the truth. And every despot learns, every autocrat, every tyrant learns that if you tell a lie long enough, people will take it as the truth. If you've never seen that picture before, ask your pastors why. Because since John Paul II, the popes have been sitting on a white throne every time there's an ecumenical council. When all the people, what does the scripture say? All the earth will worship the beast. When all the representatives from not only Protestant and evangelical churches, but also from the Muslim countries and from the other world religions, all go and give homage. But I have a warning. Many of us know this. That's why we're Seventh-day Adventists. So you may be thinking to yourself, Joe, you really haven't taught me anything new. Why have you wasted my time? Remember I began the sermon saying that is it possible that there might be, just might be, another application? I believe there is. Remember when we talked about the coverings over the sanctuary, over the tabernacle, and how if you go back to your health requirements, the basic human body is made up of primarily three layers, the outer, then the blood, and then you have all the tissue. And we saw how, in, in, if you can use your imagination, these coverings mimic those same three things. Let's go to Revelation again, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. This is John speaking of the vision of Jesus talking. And I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. Where is he? If there's seven golden lampstands back to the tabernacle, where is he standing? He's in the holy place next to the lamps, right? And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like who? The Son of Man, Jesus, clothed with the garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with golden band. His head where his hair was like what? was like wool, as white as snow. And how does it describe his eyes? They were like flames of fire, like the Shekinah glory coming out of the eyes. And his feet were like fine brass or bronze. What was the altar of sacrifice made up of? Bronze. In fact, the bronze came from censors of priests who rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Aaron's rod was also came out of a rebellion. Both of those point to the rebellion of heaven and earth against God. His eyes are like flames of fire. His feet are like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Remember, the altar of sacrifice had 
fire in his voices of many waters. Next picture. Not being disrespectful, but if you overlay the human body over the sanctuary, over the tabernacle. If Christ's eyes are described as flames of fire, where would his eyes be? Shekinah glory, right where the presence of God is. His feet are like fiery brass. His feet will be, would be exactly where the, the altar of sacrifice. Not being indiscreet, but what comes next? The laver of water. What did he tell the woman at the well? I will give you water, that living water, from which you'll never thirst. Where is the source of human life, the human reproductive system, right where the labor of water is? When we are baptized, what are we? We are given a new life. We are born again. David in the Psalms says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart. Look where the table of showbread would be. Right where? Right where the human heart is. Across, you got the seven-branch candlestick. When we talk about doing what's right, what are we always talking about? Let your light so shine to give glory to whom? To me? No, glory to God. The altar of incense, right where the human throat is. And what does Revelation and the Psalms tell us? That this represents the prayers of the saints. Finally, when we go come back, where then is the temple residing in the Holy of Holies? Where does Satan want to sit? He wants to sit here in my temple, in your temple. He wants us to have a false understanding of God's character so that we'd be afraid of God rather than being drawn to him. So that our obedience is an attempt to earn favor with God. Maybe I can earn grace. Maybe I can buy it with money. Rather than just accept it as a gift. And that our obedience is from the heart. I began the sermon, what was the purpose of the temple? Let them build me a sanctuary so they may dwell among them. In Eden, the circle of trust, which love demands, was broken. God has been trying to restore that trust in God, in man, for us to trust him ever since. Is a physical temple necessary for Paul's prophecy? I hope I have shown you. And this is brief. There's more to it. But I hope I've shown you that, yes, it is quite possible, and in fact has been fulfilled, and it does not require a physical temple. It is the church. And third, is it just possible what the prophecy might have, multiple fulfillments? And I leave you with this, a quote from Martin Luther. I am more afraid of my own heart than of any pope or all his cardinals. I have within me, and I will personalize that, I have it within me, the great pope called self.